This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the fourth episode of season eight. Before we get into it, let's break the ice as always. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Two facts that sound like bullshit. Cleopatra was alive closer to the moon landing than she was to the construction of the Great Pyramid of Giza. The former occurred in 1969, and construction on the Great Pyramid was estimated to be completed between 2600 and 2400 BC. Cleopatra was born in circa 69 to 68 BC. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. We don't always get the kind of work we want, but we always have a choice of whether to do it with good grace or not. English actor Christopher Lee said that, a.k.a. Dracula. Listeners Damien Mosscrop and Nicola suggested this week's case via messenger and email. We're in the county of Cumbria this week in northwest England, specifically we're in the small village of Lees, located a couple of miles east of Barrow in Furness. Here are five quickfire facts about Barrow. Number one, Barrow welcomed the Tour of Britain, the UK's most prestigious cycle race, in 2018. One of the stages started from the town's historic town hall. Number two, Furness Abbey was founded in 1127 and was one of the wealthiest Cistercian abbeys in England until it was dissolved by Henry VIII in 1537. Number three, although the Romans seemed to have bypassed the area, the Vikings once occupied Barrow and nearby Walney Island. Number four, shipbuilding is at the economic core of the town and submarines are still built for the Royal Navy in Devonshire Dock Hall. And number five, Peel Castle is a 14th century stronghold on Peel Island that was bought as a warehouse to store grain and wool. The landlord of the Ship Inn on the island, known locally as the King of Peel, can knight people that visit. As of the 2021 census, the estimated population of Barrow is 67,400. Let me quickly advise you that this podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. As always, listener discretion is advised. This week's case is one of the most divisive I've come across. I liken it to the Luke Mitchell case I covered in episode 8 of season 7. Legally, the villain of this week's episode is Gordon Park, a retired primary school teacher who was sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of his ex-wife Carol. Having said that, there is a section of people that believe Gordon was innocent and that he was subjected to an unfair trial. As always, I'll leave the subjective guesswork to you, the listener. I'll provide you with as many objective details as possible, but you can decide whether Gordon was guilty or innocent. Make sure you let me know your thoughts in the YouTube comments or via social media. Let's start with Carol Ann Park, 
a woman born in December 1945 and adopted by the Price family. Carol was the middle child of the Prices, with Ivor Price being her older brother and Christine Price being her younger sister. I can't offer you much about what her childhood was like, but she would go on to become a teacher at Brufton in Furness Primary School. Carol was a fun-loving and outgoing person, a social butterfly if you will. She tended to prefer the company of adults rather than children, which is ironic given her job, but she would go on to have two biological children whilst adopting a third. Jeremy, Carol's son, said of his mum, She wasn't particularly affectionate towards children, but she played the role of mother. But I'm getting slightly ahead of myself. In the early 60s, it was either 1962 or 1963, Carol met a man named Gordon Park, who was born on January 25th, 1944. Gordon would also become a primary school teacher, but the pair met when they were both teenagers. Their love continued to blossom as they entered adulthood. Gordon proposed, Carol accepted, and the pair married in August 1967. Their eldest biological child, Jeremy, was born in March 1970, while their youngest, Rachel, was born in May 1971. The third child in their life was Vanessa, born in March 1968. Vanessa was the biological daughter of Christine Price, Carol's sister, but in 1969, her mum was tragically taken away from her when she was just 13 months old. Christine was strangled to death by her boyfriend, 19-year-old John Rapson, in April 1969, making Vanessa an orphan. Carol and Gordon welcomed young Vanessa into their life when she was just 18 months old and raised her as their own. A year or two after the birth of Rachel, marital problems started creeping into Carol and Gordon's relationship more frequently. It's reported that they were in an open relationship and formed intimate bonds with other people. I can't say whether they knew of each other's extramarital affairs, but they may have had some form of an understanding. The family lived in a detached bungalow in Lease called Bluestones, but in September 1974, Carol temporarily moved out, staying at a local guest house. The unhappiness she felt towards her marriage led to Carol moving in with a man named David Brearley shortly before Christmas that year. It's said in one article that Carol had met David at Keele University in Staffordshire, but that's a good 130 miles away from Lease. As Carol worked in a primary school in Lease, seems unlikely that she'd have undertaken a five-hour round-trip commute each day. As the 1974 festive period came and went, 1975 began with Carol planning to gain full custody of her three children. The marriage, in her mind, had nothing left to salvage, so her main priority was getting her kids back. In a shocking turn of events, especially for the time, Gordon went on to win the custody battle at Middlesbrough Magistrates Court and was awarded full custody of the couple's three children in March 1975. It would later come to light that Gordon had withheld some information during the trial though. When asked if he had had extramarital relations, Gordon told the court that he had remained faithful to Carol when that wasn't the case. Gordon had had an affair with a woman known only as Mrs Walmsley, but lied to the court as he didn't want to prejudice his custody case. The result of the hearing devastated Carol. She soon after sought help and received treatment from a doctor for depression. Based on my research, I believe one of the medications Carol was prescribed to help treat her depression was triptazole, an antidepressant with sedative properties that contains the active ingredient amitriptyline. It'll become clear as to why I think that as the story progresses. 
By August of 1975, Carol's relationship with David had dwindled to the point where they were only seeing each other once a month, if that. Realising that she wanted her family back, or more specifically her children, Carol decided to give things another go with Gordon and move back into Bluestones. For all intents and purposes, Carol was happy being back home with her family. Her friends and colleagues don't recall her ever saying she wanted to leave or that she was unhappy with Gordon. Some disagree with that and believe that it was all a ploy by Carol to win back full custody of her children. She was playing the long game, if you will. With both Gordon and Carol working as teachers, Carol was a deputy headmistress by then, the six-week holidays each summer were the only time they could plan to get away and spend some quality time with the kids. As the final school term of 1976 drew near, the plan was for the Park family to visit Blackpool for the day after the schools had closed. Friday, July 16th, 1976 was the last day of school and the trip was due to take place on Saturday, July 17th. Here is where the story starts to go sideways from an accuracy perspective. That weekend's chain of events relies heavily on witness testimony, which isn't the most reliable thing in the world. As a result, it feels like this story's events are built primarily on hearsay rather than fact. During that final week at school, Carol's colleagues recalled her telling them about the family's planned trip to Blackpool at the weekend. She was excited to end a stressful year and let loose with her kids for the day. Bizarrely, there doesn't appear to be any formal record of Carol having turned up for work that day, but that might be down to something as simple as a lack of such a protocol in the school at the time. Carol visited Maureen and Kay Price, her sister-in-law and niece respectively, at some point that week, with several sources indicating that it may have been on Friday, July 16th. The reason for Carol's visit was to pay some Christmas club money, which I assume was a savings pot used for presents, food, etc. Kay was promised a birthday present and a card by her aunt who assured her she would be visiting again on Sunday, July 18th to drop them off. Mary Robinson, one of Gordon and Carol's neighbours, provided further witness testimony as she recalled speaking to Carol on what she thought was the morning of Saturday, July 17th. Carol told Mary how thrilled she was now the school was closed for the summer and how she was looking forward to the family trip to Blackpool. Here's the thing... Carol didn't end up going to Blackpool with Gordon and the kids. Instead, she supposedly said she felt too ill to join them and spent the day in bed. Jeremy, who was six at the time, recalled begging his mum to come with them on the trip and even brought his sister Vanessa with him for backup when he did so. Jeremy would later say, I remember trying to persuade her to come to Blackpool, me and Vanessa I think. I can remember she wasn't very keen but didn't really give a reason. I felt rejected at that point. I asked her in the way that a six-year-old would. In my mind, it's just a snap memory. I remember it was sunny and warm. I wanted her to come and she said she wasn't coming. 30-year-old Carol wasn't swayed by her children's pleas and opted to remain in bed. It doesn't stay anywhere what illness Carol was suffering from, so it's impossible to know whether or not she was fit enough to go with them. The other side of that point is that Carol might not have wanted to go with them because she had other plans, secret plans. But again, it's all conjecture. Gordon and the kids headed down to Blackpool with the Pleasure Beach being their main destination. That's an amusement park, by the way, not a nudist beach. The kids went on some rides, including a roller coaster. I did some digging to see what rides were open back in 1976. The main ones appear to have been the Big Dipper, the Grand National, Virginia Reel and Cyclone. Then again, the kids probably went on the Zipper Dipper, a family coaster. 
When they returned home after a tiring day at the theme park, Carol was nowhere to be seen. The kids asked where their mummy was, to which Gordon replied, I don't know. What else could he say? Concerns weren't immediately raised because, as I mentioned earlier, Carol had left home before, on two separate occasions, so it wasn't exactly out of the ordinary for her to up and leave out of the blue. Malcolm and Angela Short, two of Gordon and Carol's friends, visited Bluestones on Sunday, July 18th, unannounced. From what I could make out, Gordon explained to them that Carol was not at home upon their return from Blackpool, but he wasn't too worried, as she hadn't taken a handbag or purse with her. The message he portrayed to the shorts was that she'll likely return home soon. They were invited inside for a drink, but politely declined and made their way home. Gordon went about his life as normal for the rest of the summer holidays and looked after the kids on his own as he had done previously. Before long, the summer had come to a close and the first day of the new school year was upon Gordon. It was Thursday, September 2nd, 1976 when the new school term started and concerns were raised immediately when Carol didn't show up for work. A couple of days later, on Saturday, September 4th, Gordon finally decided that he needed to report Carol as missing after informing Ivor, her brother, that he hadn't seen her for the duration of the six-week holidays. The police were then informed that Carol was missing, with one source suggesting that Gordon reported his wife missing via a solicitor. If true, that's a bold yet strategic move. The police were told that there were no signs of a struggle at Bluestones and it didn't appear as if someone had broken in unwanted. It wasn't just the lack of a person handbag that confused the officers upon hearing of Carol's disappearance. She hadn't taken any clothes with her either. A missing person investigation was soon launched which saw Gordon providing police with a witness statement explaining his version of events. The investigation led to nothing. No trace of Carol Park could be found. There were no sightings and no contact was made with friends or relatives. Carol had seemingly disappeared off the face of the earth. No money was withdrawn from any of her accounts, including her sole account and the couple's joint account. Eventually, the police had to scale back the investigation and everybody stopped trying to find Carol. There doesn't appear to have been any speculation to suggest that people thought she was dead. Knowing her personality, people thought she had run away, begun a new life somewhere else, and kept everyone in the dark. I'm sure that's not true for everyone, but that was the common consensus for the most part. In November 1978, over two years after Carol disappeared, Gordon filed for divorce. In the UK, if your husband or wife suddenly says, I'm off, and you never see them again, once two years have passed, you can file for a divorce on the grounds of desertion. Gordon's divorce from Carol was granted in August 1979 and he didn't waste much time marrying again. His second wife was Catherine Sillars, with whom Gordon tied the knot in 1981. Catherine, like Gordon, had three kids of her own, taking the total number of kids in the new family to six. I get enough stress looking after one kid, so it can't have been easy for either them or the kids. It was a short-lived union between Gordon and Catherine, after a few months of being married, they ended their relationship and got divorced. A decade of relationship solitude followed for Gordon, but that all changed when he entered into a relationship with one of his old school friends, Jennifer Marshall, known affectionately as Jenny. The pair had known each other for decades, so they already had a pre-existing history. By 1993, Gordon and Jennifer had married and moved to a detached house on Norland Avenue. Between them, they had five children, as Jennifer had two of her own. A year later, Gordon retired from teaching as he planned on enjoying his golden years with Jennifer. 
We now arrive at the point in the story where things begin to escalate at a rapid pace. A startling discovery made by some amateur scuba divers in August 1997 would start a chain of events that would send a shockwave through the UK and lead to a debate that may never end. On August 10th 1997, the divers explored Coniston Water, a lake about 5 miles long and half a mile wide. It's the third largest lake by volume and the fifth largest by area in the Lake District. At around 25 metres, or 82 feet, roughly half the maximum depth of Coniston Water, the divers noticed a bag resting on a sort of ledge. Initially dismissing it, the divers ignored the bag and left upon completion of their dive. Over the next few days, the divers likely had several discussions about what was in the bag, and curiosity got the better of them. Three days later, on August 13th, 1997, the divers returned to the same spot of Coniston Water and brought the bag back up to shore with them. An inspection of the bag followed, and it suddenly dawned on the divers that they had retrieved from the lake a bag of human remains. The remains were that of a woman who had been tightly bound in the fetal position using a series of complicated knots. Her body was then wrapped using bin bags and a green rucksack and placed inside a custom-made package made out of a sewn-up black pinafore dress. The dress used to make the package in which the woman's body was placed was identical to one Carol Park was photographed wearing years earlier. The macabre package was weighed down using a flattened piece of lead pipe before being thrown into the lake. Meticulous reconstruction of the woman's jaw, mouth and teeth led to her being identified. Carol's dentist found a decades-old x-ray and a match was confirmed. The lady in the lake was Carol Park. The story will continue after these quick messages. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to the story. Over the next 10 days, two separate post-mortems were conducted. Home Office pathologist Dr Edmund Tapp concluded that Carol had been attacked with a heavy object such as an axe. At least two blows with said object were thought to have struck Carol in the face, although she did her best to put up a fight against her attacker, as evidenced by the defensive wounds on her left hand near her wrist. Remember how I mentioned the drug triptazole earlier? The reason I think that may have been what she was prescribed when diagnosed with depression is that Detective Chief Inspector Keith Churchman believed Carol had been drugged with triptazole before she was murdered. It wouldn't have sedated Carol sufficiently to knock her unconscious, but it would certainly have reduced her ability to defend herself despite her best efforts. On August 24th, 1997, Gordon received a phone call from his son Jeremy that changed his life. Gordon was on a French cycling holiday with his wife Jennifer. Jeremy said to his dad, Dad, the police have found Mum's body in the bottom of Coniston Water and they want to speak to you. Gordon reportedly responded by simply saying, Oh dear. After making a swift return to the UK, Gordon learned that the police had already searched Bluestones, the old house he had shared with Carol over two decades earlier. Gordon was swiftly arrested and taken to Preston Prison. It's worth noting that Gordon had no criminal history before his arrest. He was seen as a law-abiding citizen and, by all accounts, a good man. 
Jeremy had gone on record saying that he never witnessed his dad being violent towards his mum. Sure, they had the odd Barney, but what couple doesn't? Throughout August 24th and 25th, Gordon was painstakingly questioned by the police about Carol's disappearance in July 1976. When asked outright if he had murdered Carol, Gordon said he hadn't. He was honest about the pair's marital problems and admitted that he couldn't recall much of the trip to Blackpool as it happened 21 years ago. He did, however, assure the officers that his statement during the initial missing person investigation in 1976 would be accurate. There was a problem, though. The 1976 missing person file, which included Gordon's detailed witness statement, had gone missing. One source made a ballsy claim that Gordon and one of the local police officers that worked the case in 1976 were pally due to them both being Freemasons, so the file was perhaps intentionally misplaced. Dr Sandra Lean, a leading criminologist specialising in miscarriages of justice, has debunked that claim and states that Gordon was never a Freemason at any point during his life. Regardless of the missing file, Gordon was charged with Carol's murder on August 25th, 1997 and remanded to Preston Prison, where he remained for the next two weeks. On September 9th, 1997, Gordon was released on bail as the investigation continued in the background. It's rumoured that Gordon told one of his fellow inmates, The police have charged me, but they can't prove it. Two days after Gordon was released on bail, a third post-mortem took place. This time it was conducted by Home Office pathologist Dr William Lawler. Dr Tapp and Dr Lawler, representing the prosecution and defence respectively, argued the toss over what they believed Carol Park's cause of death was. Dr Tapp was adamant that Carol was murdered by an assailant using a heavy object such as an axe. Dr Lawler disagreed, instead insisting that the cause of death could not be confirmed due to how long Carol's body had been submerged in Coniston water. The injuries to Carol's face were undeniable, but Dr Lawler explained that it could not be proved that they were sustained before death. They could not be 100% connected to Carol's cause of death. I'm now going to mention something I will discuss in more depth later in the story. On September 30th, 1997, a police dive search occurred at the crime scene. The divers recovered some 70s-era clothes and cosmetic items, which were then placed into an evidence bag and sealed. Four days later, the sealed bag was opened, and along with the aforementioned items, was a rock. It's that rock I want you to remember for later on. By early January 1998, it was the 6th, the proceedings against Gordon Park were discontinued. The conclusion was reached that there was insufficient evidence to convict Gordon regarding Carol's murder, so the police were forced to let him go. Six years later, on January 13th, 2004, Gordon Park was re-arrested on suspicion of murdering Carol Park. Several new pieces of evidence had come to light that had allowed for a new prosecution. Firstly, a man named Michael Wainwright made a witness statement on October 9th, 2000, in which he told police officers that he had it on good authority that Gordon Park had murdered his ex-wife. Michael was at Preston Prison at the same time as Gordon when he was on remand after his arrest in 1997. Michael was in there after trying to suffocate his four-year-old stepson in February of that year. After watching a Channel 4 documentary about Carol's murder, Michael recalled hearing Gordon mumbling, she deserved it whilst in the prison's exercise yard. Michael had been told by another inmate, Glenn Banks, who was sharing a cell with Gordon on the prison's F-wing, that Gordon often sleep-talked and confessed to having murdered Carol in his sleep. Secondly, the prosecution had brought in a supposed not-expert, 
who concluded that some of the intricately tied knots found on ropes at Bluestones were comparable with the knots used to bind Carol Park's body. Even more new evidence came to light when the police conducted another search of Gordon's house after his second arrest. This time they found a wooden ice axe, the sort of thing climbers use to ascend mountains. Gordon Park's murder trial began in November 2004, and there's a lot to cover. Let's get the knot theory out of the way first. The defence got one of their knot experts to look at the knots found at Bluestones and compared them with the knots used on Carroll. Robert Chisnall, the expert, examined all 194 knots recovered from Gordon's house. Gordon enjoyed sailing and was a member of the local sailing club. 69% of the knots at Gordon's house were half-stitches, a type of knot not found anywhere on the ropes used to bind Carol's body. Didn't realise how many times I'd written knot in this script. The main knots used on Carol were granny knots. That type of binding knot was not found on any of the ropes recovered from bluestones. Really should have proofread this. I'm twisting my tongue here. The prosecution expert swiftly withdrew his evidence and the knot debate ended. The prosecution's key evidence were the statements of Michael Wainwright and Glenn Banks and the wooden ice axe. We'll discuss the two statements first. The testimony of Glenn Banks has been scrutinised because it was known that he had a severe learning disability and struggled to comprehend what was happening during the trial. Mr Justice McComb even insisted that the guidelines for children's court testimony should be followed. In his testimony, which was provided by video link, Glenn was reportedly incoherent and found it difficult to recall the precise chain of events. As for Michael Wainwright, his testimony has been debated by some due to his character. Several facts were not disclosed during Gordon's trial in relation to Michael, with the main one being he was both a drug dealer and a drug user. He'd taken various drugs throughout his life, but cannabis was the main one. He'd used it for over a decade at the time of the events in 1997, and also dabbled with cocaine, LSD and amphetamines. As a result of his heavy drug use, Michael's memory wasn't the best, so his reliability as a witness was suspect. He had also previously been admitted to a psychiatric ward on four separate occasions and was on antidepressants. Finally, he also attempted to blame some of his actions on a poltergeist who haunts his home and has admitted to hearing voices in his head. For some unknown reason, the wooden ice axe was not used in the prosecution's case, but it was used in the defence's case. Witness Paul Shaw, a friend of Gordon's, spoke to his good character and explained that he could not imagine Gordon using the axe in such a violent way, especially against his wife at the time. Bizarrely, neither the prosecution nor the defence asked Dr. Tapp about the wooden ice axe, despite the pathologist claiming that Carol's injuries likely occurred from being hit with a heavy object, such as an axe. Another theory was that Carol left Bluestones with an unidentified male driving a pale blue or grey-blue Volkswagen Beetle, as confirmed by witness Sabine Dixon, a neighbour of Gordon and Carol's. Sabine wasn't sure about the date she saw the Volkswagen pull up to Bluestones, but she thought it was the day of the planned family trip to Blackpool. How about this for a theory? It was put forward that John Rapson, the man who murdered Christine Price, Vanessa's biological mum, may have turned up at Bluestones to see his daughter and murdered Carol whilst there. He was allowed out of prison on weekends at the time, so it's not that far-fetched of a theory. 
Another pair of witnesses, Mr. and Mrs. Young, testified that they saw a man dumping a large package over the side of a sailboat on Coniston Water in late July 1976, but they couldn't be sure of the exact date. At the time, they joked it was likely a disgruntled husband disposing of his wife's body after murdering her. The man they saw was of slim build and wore glasses, as did Gordon Park. Remember the rock? That random item placed into the sealed evidence bag by mistake? Two geologists, Dr. Piri and Professor Pai, gave evidence during the trial about said rock. Dr. Piri, representing the prosecution, concluded that the rock and four rock samples taken from bluestones contained similar characteristics. Compared with rocks recovered from the shores of Coniston Water, they had a different composition. Therefore, Dr. Piri suggested the rock found in Coniston Water came from bluestones, the home of Gordon Carroll. However, Professor Pai, representing the defence, stated that the rocks recovered from bluestones did share similar characteristics with samples taken from the eastern shore of Coniston Water. Mr Justice McComb informed the jury that it was up to them to interpret the contradicting findings provided by the two geologists. The last crucial pieces of evidence to discuss are some alleged lies Gordon had previously told. The first was that he falsely claimed to have never committed adultery when he and Carol went through their custody battle in 1975. Another was that he told the police Carol had previously disappeared without a trace, but that wasn't quite right. When Carol went to live in the local guest house in September 1974, Gordon was the one that dropped her off. Gordon also told the police he had sold his dinghy in June 1976 when he had in fact sold it in July 1976. A lie about whether or not Gordon wore glasses when outside was also disproved when a photograph of him doing so was brought to light. That likely relates to the sailboat sighting of a man in glasses by Mr and Mrs Young. There's a lot to consider there and there's even more that I've not covered. The trial concluded on January 28, 2005, with the jury unanimously finding Gordon Park guilty of murdering Carol Park. Mr Justice McComb handed him a life sentence with a minimum term of 15 years. In December 2007, it was announced that Gordon Park had plans to appeal his conviction with Clarion solicitors representing him. The appeal was unsuccessful when put to a single judge, but a renewed appeal in November 2008 had Gordon's case put to a full court of three judges, David Keane, Sir Jack Beetson and Sir Alistair Macduff. A new report from a different geologist dated October 17, 2007 was the key to Gordon's appeal, as he felt it helped prove that he did not dump Carol's body in Coniston Water. Even though Dr Andrew Moncrief, the new geologist, said the rock was indistinguishable from samples collected from the lake, the court refused to appeal. After receiving that devastating news, Gordon Park was put on suicide watch after suddenly giving away all of his personal possessions to other prisoners. Interestingly, Gordon had previously requested access to a copy of the official prison ombudsman's report into serial killer Harold Shipman's death on January 13, 2004. I recently covered the Harold Shipman case in my season 7 special, but in a nutshell, he hanged himself at Wakefield Prison on that date after fashioning a noose from his bedsheets. Jennifer said, I think I had sent him the report about Shipman. I sent it to him because he asked for it, but I don't know why he asked for it. He told me there was concern that he had received this report. He did not say what the concern was, but it was probably suicide. Gordon used to receive regular visits from Pastor George Harrison of Pendlebury Evangelical Church until his visiting rights were suddenly revoked in December 2009. 
Pastor Harrison claims the prison authorities were displeased at him organising a prayer vigil for Gordon outside of Strangeways Prison in Manchester. He said, One of the officials there said it was because of the vigil, but I don't understand that because they let me continue to see him at Strangeways after it had taken place. Gordon had since been moved from Strangeways to Garth Prison, but Pastor Harrison had only been allowed to see him on one occasion since, which he was told was a mistake. Jennifer said the following of Gordon's state of mind after the visits from the pastor were stopped. He just became more introverted and hated everything about prison. The longer it went on, the more he hated it. He gained something from George's visits which I could not give him. He was devastated when they were stopped and he seemed sadder somehow. That was the last straw really. On January 5th, 2010, the day of his 66th birthday, Gordon Park was found hanged in his cell shortly after 8am. Around his neck was a ligature, over his head was a plastic bag. His death is eerily similar to Harold Shipman's, because Harold hanged himself on the eve of his 58th birthday, although he supposedly had different reasons for doing so. Another interesting coincidence between the two cases is that the day that Harold hanged himself, that was the day that Gordon was re-arrested. Gordon's death didn't stop his family from attempting to clear his name. In November 2014, the Criminal Cases Review Commission, CCRC, announced they were looking into Gordon's conviction as new DNA evidence had been brought to their attention. The conviction was eventually referred to the Court of Appeal on October 26, 2018, under Section 9 of the Criminal Appeal Act 1995. The CCRC argued that the non-disclosure of some key facts, mainly involving the character and drug use of Michael Wainwright, as discussed earlier, meant that Gordon was not given the chance of a fair trial. The appeal, led by Jeremy Park, officially began on November 5th, 2019, and ended on May 1st, 2020. The result was the same as it had been previously. The Honourable Mr Justice Sweeney dismissed the appeal by saying, We have no doubt as to the safety of the conviction. Therefore, the appeal is dismissed. If you'd like to read the full document of the ruling on May 1st, 2020, I've linked it in my show notes. After that appeal was dismissed, the following statement was issued on behalf of Gordon's family. The family, friends and supporters of Gordon Park and Carol Park's children are disappointed with today's decision. Having exhausted all options, we are now left without the closure we were all hoping for. The judgment marks the end of our fight to clear his name. And that was the story of convicted British murderer Gordon Park. Thanks again Damien, Mosscrop and Nicola for suggesting that case. What do you think? Did Gordon kill Carol? Or was an innocent man imprisoned? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this one. Please drop me a comment or hit me up on social media. I've got five new reviews to read this week. Addicted to Jay left a five star review on Apple Podcasts UK. Titled, So Friendly and Informative, it reads, It is honestly so refreshing to listen to a British podcast that has charisma and friendliness, but focuses on fact and not opinion. I feel like the host is my friend who's telling me about a case, and it's lovely. Easy to listen to, especially if you like to listen while in bed. Thank you. Haley left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled, A Good Find. It reads, I stumbled across this podcast while searching for something new to listen to. Ten episodes in one evening you could say I'm hooked. Three of those episodes I'd never heard of before. Love the podcast. Rachel113007 left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts Australia. Titled, Love This Podcast, it reads, This is a cracker. I adore the intro with the little girl's voice. So adorable. 
The dude, Stuart, is respectful but engaging. Episodes are concise. Give it a go. Alter Jean recommended British Murders on Facebook by saying, Stuart Blues has found his calling with British Murders. He provides a quick-paced story with all the facts needed, answers the questions I have while listening, and his humour provides smiles and chuckles I never expected in a crime podcast. A great find. Stuart, you have a new follower. Amy, I want to say Boff. Boff, B-A-U-G-H. We'll go with Amy, sorry. Amy left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Found You By Accident. It reads, I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts on Spotify as I drive a lot for work. I stumbled upon yours and listened to a whole series in one night. I love that it's British as I am from Nottinghamshire. Keep up the good work and looking forward to catching up on the ones I haven't listened to yet. Pauline left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It's a long one, so I will summarise. Hi, Stu. I am a Lancashire expat living on the prairies in Canada and I've just finished listening to all your podcasts to date, so I'm feeling a bit lost. Love hearing all the northern sayings and accent and being familiar with a lot of the places mentioned. I especially love the compassion you have for the victims and families and how you never seem to be desensitised to the inhumanity of it all. Keep up the excellent work. Don't know how you keep it all together. I am now off to try to find where I can buy you a coffee. Thank you for the three coffees, by the way, Pauline. I've added your case suggestion to my spreadsheet too. And finally, Kate left a four-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Bobby Holmes. It reads, Bobby needs to be dropped. Obnoxious, interrupts continually, way too American. Kate, I believe, is an American listener as well. That really made me chuckle because Bobby once got a sub five-star review because one of her listeners didn't like me. And now the reverse has happened. Bobby got a kick out of it when I told her. She had no issues with me reading it out, by the way. She's a good sport. Thank you, Addicted to Jay Haley, Rachel, Alter Jean, Amy, Pauline and Kate for leaving the show such lovely and funny reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. Thank you so much for helping me reach 500 reviews on there after my request last week. I'm up to 515 at the time of writing, which is amazing. It's worth mentioning that I've once again started recording video versions of my episodes for YouTube, and I'm around 10 subscribers short of 2,000 on there. If video is your thing, my YouTube channel is the place to go. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each on BritishMurders.com. Thank you and welcome to my newest Patreon member, Melanie Green. Thank you, Katie Harding, for buying me three beers via buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. Katie said, Love the podcast. Come across British Murders six weeks ago and just starting season four. Please continue emailing case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll get a cheeky shout out too. But that's it for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, cheerio.